Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that replaces preacherly burnout with a spirit's fire. Mm. I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, ordained Lutheran pastor and assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. And I'm Tim McNinch, somebody who needs a longer title. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're bringing you preaching tips and insights from Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. The first reading for the Baptism of Our Lord Sunday. Yeah. Rachel's up this week, so uh, I wonder where you're going to take us, Rachel. I'm guessing it's going to be somewhere like completely different, way off the radar. No, my shock and awe thing that I'm doing this week is that I am sticking with the text. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, like the, the Bible, but uh, where in the Bible? No, the assigned text. No, no way. <laughs> well... <laughs> Yes, I'm adding a bit to it, but that shouldn't count. You should just be impressed with the fact that I'm staying in Isaiah at this point. Yes, I am (laughs) impressed with that. So where do you want to start, Rachel? Well, so I'd actually like to start with a couple of preaching pitfalls. Um, So this text as it stands is just gorgeous. There's this language about belovedness, about redemption, about a divine abiding presence that beats back the fires of life with its own fierce love. But there are a couple of big ditches that are waiting to swallow up the unwary preacher. And I don't want any of our preachers assigned to that fate. Do you, Tim? No, no. And we don't have any unwary preachers, so I'm not too worried about it. Exactly. We care about you and we respect you. So here are a couple of ditches you've already probably seen, but we're just going to talk about anyway. Sounds good. First of all, be wary of leaning too heavily into the you are mine theme of verse one. Uh, And perhaps think twice about using the popular hymn that's out there that's also titled You Are Mine. So the creator of that particular hymn has been accused of sexual abuse, assault and misconduct through over like 40 allegations. Wow. Yeah. And many of the hymns he wrote are beautiful. But they're also now difficult for churches to use as they grapple with what it means to have beloved hymns produced by someone who has done terrible things. I mean, it's allegedly at this instance, but the evidence is still pretty dang powerful. Mm, So that hymn draws inspiration from our text for today, Isaiah 43. But when you read it from the perspective of a sexual predator, The lyrics take on a whole new meaning in a really yucky way, and they can be pretty triggering for victims of sexual assault and not just people who were assaulted by this particular hymn writer. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a plug to ban the hymn. It is a plug for you, dear preacher, and your congregation to think about this issue and, and to talk about it, if nothing else. So to help you begin this conversation and gain some knowledge about this particular topic, we'll post a link to a video that was compiled of some of the women who have brought these allegations against the hymn writer. And on that page, there's some other links, too. It's a good general reminder, too, that when we're putting together liturgy and songs and a a lot of our church services focus on words, Mm. (laughs) and, and it's helpful to think through where those words are coming from how they're used, and what sorts of connotations they have. All of that is about pastoral care for our yeah, congregations. Right. So thank you for, for helping us to, to think through that. But you said you have uh, another pitfall as well? Yeah, I do. And it's actually linked to that topic you brought up of just like words matter. So this one has to do with Isaiah 43, verse 3. And that verse reads, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, 
Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. So Egypt and Ethiopia were and are nations on the African continent, and Seba or Seba likely was as well. So if you choose to focus on this verse for your sermon, you need to be really aware of the subtext of what's being implied today that wouldn't have been in the ancient context. So in Christian churches today, we often put ourselves in the place of Israel. And so that means in predominantly white churches, If we identify with Israel, then the nations that we see God giving away or giving up in favor of Israel are all African nations. So you can start to see that that implication gets pretty icky, that God will happily give up black nations in favor of Israel, which we often associate with or assume to be a lighter people or even a white people. Yeah, I mean that's that is such a pitfall there. What do we do with that? Like how how do you recommend addressing that? We could just skip the text. No, right, exactly. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Um so one of the ways that can be helpful is to look at the historical context at this point um because that sort of racialized understanding was likely not the implication of the ancient text. Mm-hmm. Um Egypt and Ethiopia and Seba were, at certain points in ancient history, all large and prosperous nations, even empires in the case of Egypt. So the ancient context wouldn't hear God saying, I give up black nations in favor of light ones. But instead, they'd be hearing God saying, I would happily give up all the flashy, shiny, rich empires in the world just to bring my smaller, beloved people back to me. And that's a really beautiful message. But it's not what we associate with African nations today, that idea of empire, Mm -hmm. especially, as I said, in in white churches. So again, just be careful of what's being implied if you lean heavily into that verse. And and even whether you choose to preach on it or not, you may want to contextualize it in passing for your folks. Mm -hmm. This verse is, is not about God despising black nations or African nations. It's God making a deliberate and really an irrational turn away from strong empires in favor of this one tiny insignificant people, all because God just loves them. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I'm glad you brought that out. I mean, another strategy would be to to take the the image, the metaphor and and flip it around. Oh, yeah. In our context where African nations are often the the small struggling Mm. uh, peoples who have been oppressed by big empires like you know, the American empire, for example, (laughs) uh, but also Western European and predominantly white empires. This could be a passage that talks about God's willingness to push aside big empires like the major Western states to focus with love and care on, on God's people that God loves so much in Africa. Oh, I really love that, especially because when you when you think about all of the empires that are involved in Africa in whatever way, through proxy wars, through economic initiatives, you could throw in their Russia, you could throw in their China. I mean, like that really is a great way to to address, I think, this verse, anyway, turning it upside down or on its head. What's the Hebrew word for that? Hafach. Hafach. Yeah, I just learned that from Tim today. That's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, those are really helpful pitfalls to avoid. Um, what else can we do to actually use this profitably in a, in a sermon? What sorts of preaching points do you have for us? So the I think the easiest access into the text is just through the, 
the gorgeousness of the poetic language. Like you could just take that and expand on it and flesh it out and, and play with it. And you could have a really beautiful sermon, especially if your preaching style tends towards the poetic already. I mean, you can just lean into that and people will come away almost just bowled over with the love that God has for them. So, so that's one way to do it. There's another way, which is a little bit more roundabout, but perhaps a little bit more powerful. Mm. Um, and, and it has to do with situating this pericope in its larger literary context. So, so that larger context includes Isaiah 42. And it might actually help us a little bit and even force us to give a little bit of pause before we jump too quickly into identifying with Israel in Isaiah 43. So the reason that I think it's important to start in Isaiah 42 is that Isaiah 43 starts in Hebrew with the phrase va'ata. Mm -hmm. And va'ata often functions as a pivot point in the Hebrew text where something was being discussed and now we're going to shift and talk about something different in some way. Uh, the NRSV captures this nicely with but now. Right. So when you come upon a phrase like that, a phrase that suggests a shift, you should automatically think, well, what are we shifting from, right? Yeah, yeah. So when we go back and read the end of Isaiah 42, if you're looking at it, Tim, what do you find there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not too happy from what I can see. No, it's really not. It's It's a section that's describing what God's people did to and with God's magnificent and magnanimous love and glory which is essentially stomp it in the mud and saunter away from it. So if you're identifying with Israel in Isaiah 43, the one that is beloved and sought after, returned and restored by God, you also need to be identifying with the Israel of Isaiah 42, mm. the one that took God's great and wonderful gift, stomped it into the mud and walked away from it completely. Yeah, I mean, but that would be a pretty hard thing to preach, don't you think? Is that, is that the angle that you have for us? Yeah, it totally is. Because this is like a fantastic Lutheran <laughs> text. This is this one goes out to all my Lutherans out there. Isaiah 42 and 43 lend themselves to a beautiful law gospel sermon. So if you're not familiar with this style of preaching, in a law gospel sermon, you first lean into the truth of who we are. A truth that, as I see, as we see in Isaiah 42, is usually not at all pretty. And in fact, it can make people pretty uncomfortable to sit in that truth. But it can also be really freeing for folks who feel oppressed by having to keep secrets or lie about themselves or present a face to the world that is not the complete truth of who they are. And then after you do that, you lean into the truth of who God is, which as we see in Isaiah 43 is very pretty. Because if the truth about us is that we tend to take God's most beautiful gifts, like ourselves and the people around us, or the beautiful salvation of Jesus Christ, and stomp them into the mud, the truth about God is that, yes, while God does get angry when we do such things, God ultimately chooses to respond to us in such a way that dispels fear, that redeems shame, that creates belonging, that stands by our side come hell or high water, and that sees us as precious and honored and beloved, gathering up all of our broken pieces and remolding them into something good for God's good purpose. Mm -hmm. 
I, I like that. That'll that'll preach. And you're in your Lutheran context there, and I'm over yeah. here in my sort of Calvinistic Presbyterian context. And we, we have, you know, total depravity and all of that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all about grace, right? It's about God's uh, perspective towards us, which is a perspective of grace that makes makes room for us despite the stuck-in-the-mudness. Yeah, and a grace that allows us and asks us to constantly be honest about who we are. And I think that's that could be a really powerful message, especially on the baptism of our Lord Sunday. Because really, you know, in my... Yeah, nice. see, I'm bringing it all yeah. back together. Tying it in. Yeah, right. Because really what Isaiah 42 to 43 demonstrates is what baptism does in our lives, like the actual thing it does. Hmm. It's not just this, this salvation at the end of time guarantee. It's the channel through which God is constantly recalling, remembering, and redeeming us in just the way that's described here. And God felt so strongly about the power of baptism that the divine one even deigned to undergo it themselves in the form of the son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) So if it's something that Jesus took that seriously, it's a good thing for us to spend some time thinking about this week as well. All right. Go baptism. Yeah, hey, we should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll, we'll add that to our merch. <laughs> that's a that's a great place to wrap it up. Thanks so much, Rachel, for your work on that one. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and speaking of merch, mm-hmm. uh, if you've all been dying for a first reading mug or a sticker or a phone case mm. uh, or a uh, tote bag, then you're in <laughs> luck. Head over to our website at firstreadingpodcast.com and check out our swag there. As always, we are grateful to Trinity Lutheran Seminary for the grant that they've given us that also helps us do what we love. Uh, If you'd like to support our efforts as well, you can do that with the donate button that's on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Go Baptism! (laughs) 